0: Our application does not fit with our requirements at the present time.
1: Regret to inform you the Rejection Podcast. My whole life has been one of rejection. Women, dogs, and comic strips. Charles Schultz. One chilly day in Minneapolis, Minnesota a barber named Carl sat down to pen a postcard. It was written on behalf of himself and his wife, Dina. The postcard read, Dear Folks, I suppose you'll be surprised to hear we had a nine-pound boy on November 26th. His name is Charles Monroe Schultz. The very next day, mailmen slid the good news into mailboxes across the state an extended family started trickling into the Schultz household to meet their newest relative. And when Dina's older brother first laid eyes on his baby nephew, he turned to the new parents and said, by golly, we're going to call him Sparkplug. Sparkplug was a name that had entered the American consciousness only four months prior. It appeared on the pages of a nationally syndicated newspaper comic strip called Barney Google by cartoonist Billy DeBeck. In the strip, googly-eyed main character Barney Google likes to gamble, and one day he finds himself in possession of a racehorse. The racehorse had downturned eyes and bow legs. He held his head low, and draped across his back was a tattered yellow blanket with his name stitched on the side Sparkplug. He may have been a horse, but he didn't look like he could race. Yet, Barney Google ushered Sparkplug onto the track, and he won. First place and $50,000. Soon, The beloved comic strip turned the sad-eyed homely horse into a regular character, and the name Sparkplug, or Sparky, echoed across the country. Back in the Schultz household, the name was just as sticky. So for the rest of his life, Charles Schultz would be called Sparky, the boy named after a comic strip. Schultz's father owned his own barber shop in St. Paul, Minnesota. And when Schultz was too young to go to school, his father would bring him along to work. After closing time, the two would throw on their winter coats and huddle onto the streetcar home. Young Sparky always took the window seat. But instead of looking out the window, Schultz looked at the condensation that formed on the glass. In those snowy Minnesota winters, the streetcar windows would fog up And he realized he could use his tiny fingers to draw pictures on the glass. The world was a canvas. His father worked six days a week. His only days off were Sundays. So Saturday nights, the pair would head to the local drugstore to buy the two Minneapolis Sunday papers. And the next morning, they'd sit and peruse the comics together. Noticing their son's interest in art, Schultz's parents bought him a small blackboard and some chalk. It had all 26 letters of the alphabet printed along the top. In the wonderful biography titled Schultz and Peanuts, author David Michaelis says the blackboard became Schultz's first friend. He spent hours drawing hundreds of pictures in white chalk. By kindergarten, Schultz was way ahead of the game. He already knew his ABCs. And come drawing class, when the students were given a blank canvas and some crayons, Schultz already had a host of ideas to pull from. He chose to draw for the class a picture of a Minnesotan man shoveling snow in a blizzard. But out of one of the snowbanks grew a single green palm tree. It was silly and interesting. At least his teacher thought so. She said, Someday, Charles, you're going to be an artist. And from that day on, Schultz knew he would become an artist. But more specifically, he would be a comic strip artist. Schultz later said, "'It's beyond the comprehension of most people "'that someone can be born to draw comic strips.' "'But as far back as he could ever remember, he was.'" When he turned seven years old, Schultz landed his first paying job, delivering magazines around the neighborhood. For him, the delivery part of the gig was easy, Asking for payment from his customers, however, was a no-go. It was way too anxiety-inducing. So he outsourced the whole talking-to-people part of the job to his outgoing cousin. Even at that young age, Schultz struggled with social anxiety. He said his crippling fear of saying the wrong thing made him appear unfriendly. Instead of talking, he preferred to withdraw and draw. So when he earned his first 10 cents, Schultz marched right over to the dime store and bought himself a booklet called How to Draw. Next to his chalkboard, that booklet became his second friend. He spent his days and nights doodling. Always kept a sharp pencil at the ready in his pocket. It was so sharp, in fact, that when his cousins got his hand-me-downs, they were endlessly perplexed as to why each pair of pants had a small hole in the front right-side pocket. In the classroom, Sparky excelled. He was one of only two students in the second grade to make the honor roll, and the principal of his elementary school took notice. She said he was, quote, "'exceptionally bright,' and by the fourth grade she plucked Schultz out of his class and skipped him ahead all the way into the fifth grade." So Sparky left behind the familiarity of his fourth grade peers and made his way over to the grade five classroom. But when he got there, one thing became painfully apparent. Schultz was about six inches shorter than the rest of his classmates. Biographer David Michaelis says Schultz was promoted in standing, but demoted in stature. He was skinny. He had to wear suspenders and a belt just to hold up his pants which made him a prime target for bullies. He can barely recall a single day on the playground that didn't end with the bigger, taller kids marching over and, quote, spoiling it. It was humiliating. Suddenly, he was the runt of the group, and a steep drop in self-confidence led to a steep drop in his grades. By junior high, Schultz said it felt like the roof caved in. Through the seventh grade, Schultz couldn't keep up with his classmates. He failed arithmetic, algebra, English, and Latin. The boy who was once praised for being the smartest in his grade was suddenly dragging down the class average. He describes his junior high self as a, quote, non-entity. How could a boy named after a homely horse expect to live life any differently? Aside from his pimples, he felt he had a featureless face. One so ordinary and generic that he was surprised if anyone could even recognize him on any given day. He felt invisible. But upon further reflection, that was his goal. When one appears so profoundly ordinary and bland, they're rarely called upon. It was safe and comfortable, but it was also lonely. Girls weren't interested in Sparky. They called him wimpy. His confidence was sub-zero, yet there was one place where Schultz did feel special, art class. Creativity was the one area in his life where Schultz blew all his schoolmates out of the water, or rather, the pond. One day, the students were asked to sketch a winter scene in art class, a skating rink. And Schultz says because it was Minnesota, no frozen pond was complete without a hole in the ice. The other students drew a perfect black oval with ink to represent the hole. But Schultz knew better. He'd spent every Sunday with his father studying the funnies, carefully examining how professional cartoonists depicted 3D scenes on a 2D page. And he knew that a proper hole in proper ice would be imperfect, jagged even, that the ice would be thick and require shading. So, when he handed in his pawnscape, his teacher couldn't believe her eyes. Schultz was praised, and soon won himself an award for his penmanship. But it wasn't well received by his peers. In the 1930s, penmanship was seen as a feminine endeavor. Now, he was short and effeminate. Art class wasn't enough to keep up his average, and Sparky was forced to repeat the 8th grade. A fall from grace right back to his old class. On his 11th birthday, Schultz's mother took him out shopping for new clothes. But as they browsed the department store, something better, something much more interesting than clothes, caught his eye. It was a book called How to Draw Cartoons. Michaelis says it was a more sophisticated version of Schultz's dime store booklet. This one compared different cartoonists' styles. Some used old-school shading techniques, others were fantasy-like and abstract, while most skewed more modern. The diversity totally fascinated Schultz. But when he started to say the words out loud, that he wanted to be among those artists, developing his own style and drawing comic strips for a living, it was met with a single, distinct reaction. How ridiculous. Schultz said it was as if he told everyone he wanted to go to the moon. Cartoonists didn't have real jobs. They weren't smart. They were pandering to the lowest common denominators of society. Schultz's mother's family in particular saw zero potential in Schultz. They said he wouldn't be worth five cents when he grew up. All he wanted to do was scribble. Scribbling wasn't, quote, man's work. Schultz's parents were impressed by his art, It was undeniably good, but Schultz later said even they didn't know what to do with it. By high school, Schultz's grades hadn't improved. He was failing three subjects. So one afternoon, his physics teacher pulled him aside. He asked Schultz what was going on. Schultz said maybe physics just wasn't his forte. So the teacher asked him what he thought was his forte. Schultz said, cartooning. The teacher laughed so hard, he snorted, and Sparky failed yet another class. After school, he'd go home, shut his bedroom door, and breathe a deep sigh, the sweet relief of knowing for the rest of the day he didn't have to speak to anyone. He could draw in peace, practicing for the day they'd all eat their words when he became a world-famous cartoonist. One afternoon, Schultz's mother noticed an ad in the newspaper for a comic strip art exhibit opening at the St. Paul Public Library. So after school, the family went to take a look. Schultz carefully examined every single panel on display and in his mind started comparing them to his own work. And his own work didn't stack up. His drawings were on scrap pieces of paper, If he wanted to improve his technique, he'd have to improve his tools. So Schultz got himself a job at the local grocery store. It paid $9 a week. With that, he could buy proper ink and good quality paper. Then, at age 14, Schultz decided to submit one of his drawings to a comic strip syndicate, meaning it supplied comic strip art to multiple publications. Schultz drew a picture of his black-and-white dog named Spike. He slid it into an envelope and crossed his fingers. On February 22, 1937, Spike the dog appeared in 300 different newspapers in 23 countries, with millions of eyeballs catching the byline that read, Drawn by Sparky, his first-ever published work. In his senior year of high school, Schultz's mother came across yet another interesting newspaper ad. It was for a Minnesota-based mail-order art school. The course cost $170, a lot of money during the Great Depression. But one lucky student could win free tuition by submitting one of their drawings for review. The best artist would win. So Schultz submitted a drawing, But a short while later, a letter came in the mail. Schultz was rejected for the free tuition. They said he, quote, failed to show real ability. He was crushed. So, despite supporting the family off a barber's salary, despite the Great Depression, and despite any concerns he may have had about his son's future as a cartoonist, Schultz's father decided to pay the full tuition himself in monthly installments of $10. This mail-order course was the best-case scenario for Schultz. He could learn his craft, inching one step closer to his ultimate dream, and he could do it all completely alone, from the comfort of his bedroom. As his senior year of high school came to a close, Schultz submitted his drawings to the yearbook team. But just before graduation, when the yearbook started circulating around the school, Sparky flipped through the pages only to realize his drawings were nowhere to be found. As it turned out, they'd been rejected. A fitting end to a high school experience Schultz describes as one of rejection. Rejection based on his size and appearance, rejection of his personality, and the rejection of his dreams and aspirations. After graduation, Schultz decided college wasn't for him. He didn't believe himself to be smart enough. Instead, he continued with his mail-order course. It was in this time that he learned of the nuances between different pens and inks. He learned about perspective and motion. Each week, he'd march over to the post office with a package full of drawings, then wait for a letter in the mail critiquing his art and helping him improve. He also continued his part-time position at the grocery store. But that job required two things. Social skills and the ability to do math. Those were not Sparky's fortes. So eventually, one weekend, he received notice that he was fired. They said he was too awkward with the customers and they needed someone who could remember prices. Schultz was actually relieved. He got a new job as a golf caddy. When he wasn't drawing or schlepping golf clubs, Schultz was mailing his work to publications. He wrote cover letters by hand until he saved enough money to buy himself a second-hand typewriter. By this time, the Disney movies Pinocchio and Dumbo had just come out, and Bambi was right around the corner. To a budding cartoonist, Walt Disney Productions seemed like the mecca. So Schultz mailed them a letter. And to his surprise, the studio promptly mailed back an official application form. Along with the completed form, they requested Schultz send a sample drawing of an existing Disney character. So he did just that, licked the envelope, and sent it off to California. But before Schultz even had time to get excited, Disney rejected him. They said he was, quote, unqualified. Next, Schultz applied to be an artist for a textbook company, but they never replied. Multiple times a week, Schultz's father would stop at the post office on his way to work and mail off his son's sketches and cartoons to different publications. But Schultz said every time, he would receive a small stamped envelope whose contents, in some form or another, would tell him he wasn't worthy. Often he'd take his returned artwork and burn it. Schultz spent many an hour peering into the windows of the local newspaper offices, wishing and hoping that one day he'd see his very own comic strip grace their inky pages. Hold that inky thought. We'll be right back. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, of in June.
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Over the next year, Schultz got well-acquainted with rejection. He took on a series of odd jobs that seemed to lead nowhere. It was completely disheartening. He said those first years out of high school proved to be more difficult than he had anticipated. But even they paled in comparison to what was about to come next. In 1941, when Schultz was 19 years old, he was told his mother had terminal cancer and a few days after his 20th birthday, he received his draft notice. Before he knew it, he was leaving his mother's bedside and boarding a train headed to his Army Induction Center in Fort Snelling. It was an extremely challenging time for Schultz. The following year, he got word his mother's condition was worsening quickly, and he was granted time off to come see her. And on a cold February day in Minnesota, the mother and son said their goodbyes. The very next day, she passed away. Schultz was devastated. All too quickly, he was back on the train all alone. But he couldn't help thinking about one of the last things his mother said to him before she passed. In an effort to pretend this wasn't the end, his mother told Sparky that she thought they should get another family dog. And this time... Name it Snoopy. In 1946, Schultz was discharged from the army and returned home, changed. He endured the traumas of war. His unit fought in active ground combat. But he also endured trauma in his personal life. He was now a motherless child. The self-described lonely boy had become even lonelier. But the thing was... He was no longer a boy. He'd finally grown taller. He'd gained 25 pounds of pure muscle, and he walked differently. He carried himself differently. Suddenly, he returned to Minneapolis a man. And with that newfound confidence, he was ready to pick up where he'd left off. He says he headed out into the cold, cruel world to see who would be lucky enough to hire him as a cartoonist. Schultz submitted three different comic strip ideas to a publisher in New York. One was about the war, one took place in the jungle, and the last centered on cute little characters he called brownies. But the publisher simply told him they did not hire freelancers. He sent another letter to Disney, this time with his improved works, but he never heard back. Every day he mailed samples of his work to newspapers and syndicates, but when he checked the mail at his father's barber shop, there was never good news. The men sitting in the barber's chair would watch him through the glass and laugh. When it seemed like every publication had rejected Charles Schultz, he was forced to look elsewhere. A publisher of Roman Catholic teaching aids needed a, quote, pen and ink man to letter dialogue balloons. It paid $1.50 an hour, and if they liked him, there was the possibility of printing some of his own original cartoons. That was all Schultz needed to hear. He was the man for the job. If he got his own cartoons published, he'd have a better portfolio to show the fancy big city syndicates. One day, Schultz visited the Minnesota headquarters of the mail-order drawing school he attended back in high school to get some advice. And right there on the spot, he was offered a second job as an art instructor, where he'd review students' drawings for a cool $32 a week. In 1947, Sparky's days looked like this. In the morning, he'd head to his job teaching art, where he'd spend his days grading other fledgling artists' work. By 5 p.m. sharp, he'd clock out, then head over to his night job, inking dialogue balloons and secretly hoping to get some of his own cartoons published. His boss at job number two was pleased with his work and soon came through on his promise. He agreed to publish Schultz's original comics once a month. They'd call it, Just Keep Laughing. Each month, Schultz improved his technique and refined his idea until one day, he made a rather unusual choice. He decided to eliminate all grown-ups from his comics and only feature little kids. He changed the name from Just Keep Laughing to Sparky's Lil Folks. Soon, he had enough material to approach bigger publications again, so he tucked his artwork under his arm and headed over to the Minneapolis Star Tribune the editor took one look at his work and was impressed. On the spot, the Minneapolis Tribune offered to buy Sparky's Lil Folks. It was exciting, except the editor told Schultz he couldn't guarantee consistent space. In fact, he'd mostly just call on Schultz if there was extra room to fill during the summer months. Schultz didn't love being just a filler cartoon, so he marched across town and over to the St. Paul Pioneer Press he figured he'd see what the competition had to say. Well, the editor at the Pioneer Press loved his work too. They had a daily comics page, but it was full up, so they agreed to publish Sparky's Lil Folks once a week. A weekly feature was a dream come true, but it wouldn't pay nearly enough to support himself. A real full-time cartoonist needed to get their strip into multiple publications, big ones, with the security of a contract. So Schultz got the confidence to travel all the way to Chicago to try his luck at the Chicago Tribune, the city's leading newspaper. But when he got there, he didn't realize he needed a formal appointment, so he didn't get past the receptionist. He did, however, manage to get himself squeezed in down the street at Publisher Syndicate, a Chicago-based syndication company. But while he managed to get up the elevator this time, the appointment didn't last long. Without asking where Schultz was from or anything about him for that matter, the editor told him his work wasn't professional enough and sent him away. Completely laser-focused, Schultz then headed over to the Chicago Sun-Times, where he somehow managed to pull up a chair across from the newspaper's president. But as soon as he presented his work, The president abruptly just said, no, it was a hard pass. For 41 months, Schultz never let a single week go by without submitting work to publications. He said that way he would never be without hope. Then a letter came in the mail. It was from Walt Disney Productions. Walt Disney Productions had received Schultz's letter, and they offered him a standard one-month trial. He'd have to move to Hollywood for that time and draw only in the Disney style. It was a cartoonist's dream come true, except he was finally developing his own style, and moving to Los Angeles would mean giving up Lil' folks at the St. Paul Pioneer Press. On the one hand, he didn't have a contract at the Pioneer Press or anything, It could disappear at any moment, but it was steady published work, and it was in the direction of what he wanted to do with his life. Every other publication had rejected him outright. He was hardly in a position to be picky. But Schultz decided to put aside fear of rejection and stay the course. He turned down the opportunity from Disney. One day in 1948, Schultz sat down at his desk and started drawing— It was his typical style, a comic strip featuring little kids. But this time, he made their heads extra big. He also shortened their arms, and he could tell he was on to something. So he sent his cartoon to the Saturday Evening Post, a Philadelphia-based magazine known for its illustrations. Expecting yet another rejection, he moved on. But the following Tuesday, a check for $40 arrived in the mail, the equivalent of nearly 500 US dollars today. They'd bought one of his drawings. It was a huge moment for Sparky, his first big sale. His drawing was published in the Saturday Evening Post, except this time, he didn't sign it Sparky. He signed it Charles Schultz. Suddenly, Schultz was famous at his day job at the art school. His colleagues, fellow art lovers, understood the magnitude of that check they shared in his excitement, and suddenly Schultz felt less alone. He had friends. One of those friends was named Charles Brown. Brown was good-hearted and silly. His nickname around the office was good old Charlie Brown. Despite his triumph at the Saturday Evening Post, rejection slips continued to pour out of his mailbox. Newspapers, syndicates, you name it, they rejected Charles Schultz. Then one day, his art landed on the desk of an editor at an Ohio-based newspaper syndicate, a company that got many comic strips Schultz admired into syndication. They wrote Schultz telling him that they loved his style and flew him out to Ohio. It was his first airplane ride ever. He couldn't believe it, and it was all paid for. When he got to Ohio, he signed a contract for a minimum of six weeks of work. They took his photo for their sales booklet and Lil Folks made its way into their sales team's marketing portfolios. Finally, it was all happening after years without the promise of a feature or the security of a contract. He flew back home and started celebrating with his friends. But just before they popped the champagne, Word made its way to Minnesota that the cozy contract with the fancy syndicate was cancelled. They broke the agreement and returned Schultz's art. He later learned the sales team decided Lil Folks would never sell. He said he came as close as a cartoonist can possibly get without actually getting it. Schultz decided to pause and take a minute to analyze the competition, specifically the other kids-based comic strips out there. Most of them told stories of delinquent mischief, like pranks, but Schultz felt that concept was passé and meaningless. It was time to inject the genre with something new. Schultz's style was different. He dealt in very slight incidents rather than big adventures. The incidents were relatable and funny and brief, like calling someone's name on the street and suffering the total embarrassment when they don't hear you. Everyday human problems. He worked in three comic strip panels, but instead of filling each panel to the brim, he decided he would stand out by utilizing white space. While other cartoonists were inking in the backgrounds of each panel in solid black to stand out against white newsprint, Sparky used blank space to do the same thing, evoking a sense of minimalism in an otherwise jam-packed newspaper. This decision forced him to simplify his drawings, and as a result, his characters became more distinctive. And just like Sparkplug in Barney Google, he started creating regulars. The main character would be a young, good-hearted boy, and he would call him... Charlie Brown. Schultz mailed his new style of comic strips to United Feature Syndicate, a big comic strip syndication service in New York. And to his surprise, they wrote back. They were interested in his work and invited him to the Big Apple to chat further at their offices. Schultz was excited, but then again, this had happened once before. When he arrived in the big city, he made his way up 11 floors at the United Feature Syndicate building. Little did he know, waiting for him when the doors opened was a large group of executives passing around his art and making comments in a flurry. Then they started throwing out ideas. They wanted even more characters like Charlie Brown. Then they wondered if those characters should be teenagers instead of children. One thought maybe the panels were too subtle. Another wondered if they were too big. But if the panels were smaller, then the other newspapers could toss one onto their pages whenever they needed to eat up extra space. Schultz didn't like all the talk. There were too many cooks in the kitchen. Plus, he was still completely uninterested in being a filler comic. All that chatter suggested the suits weren't too confident in his work. But, despite all their comments and all their concerns... United Feature Syndicate offered Schultz a five-year contract and a 50-50 split on earnings. It was a dream come true. For a second, he might have hesitated worrying it was too good to be true. But once he returned home, Schultz signed the contract, had it notarized, and sent it off to New York. Then he treated himself to a steak dinner. Schultz went back to the drawing board and added more characters to the lineup. Charlie Brown needed a friend, a confidant, in the form of a dog. In honor of his late mother, he'd call it Snoopy. United Feature Syndicate started rolling out their marketing plan for their newest cartoon, They called Lil Folks the greatest little sensation since Tom Thumb. Everything was ready to go when suddenly someone appeared out of the woodwork and put a stop to the whole thing. As it turns out, there was a comic strip in the 1930s called Little Folks, and the creators still own the rights to the name across all media. It may have been spelled differently, Lil versus Little, But it was a registered trademark, and it became clear. In the 11th hour, Schultz's comic strip would have to change its name. Schultz thought good old Charlie Brown would make a good replacement. But the executives at United Feature Syndicate had their own ideas. They wanted to call it Peanuts. Schultz was absolutely horrified. What kind of name was Peanuts? It was just plain ridiculous. He would be the laughing stock of the publishing world. So he asked them, What does it even mean? And they said, Peanuts are little things, like little folks. Peanuts may have been little, but they were nothing like little folks. Peanuts were insignificant, and Schultz had spent his entire life feeling insignificant. He put up a fight, but it was already decided. The comic strip, set to be the greatest sensation since Tom Thumb, would be called Peanuts by Charles Schultz. On October 2nd, 1950, Peanuts was unveiled to the world. It started out in seven newspapers. The brand-new comic strip was a hard sell. For the syndicate to break even, it would need to make it into 100 publications— the bar was high. After one year, it was only in 36 papers and Schultz started to worry. He'd never reach 100. Over the next few years, Schultz continued to refine his characters and his style. He added more regulars like Lucy and Linus and Pigpen. He maintained his use of blank space but added more detail to the character spaces. Each character represented a different aspect of Schultz's personality. Charlie Brown felt awkward and unloved. He was vulnerable and at times lonely. Lucy was stubborn and determined. Lioness was deeply insecure, carrying a security blanket with him everywhere he went. Snoopy was an aspiring writer who slept under a quilt made of all his rejection slips. It's what made Schultz's comics so unusual. Against the black-and-white newsprint, his panels weren't all blue sky. Biographer David Michaelis says soon readers started catching on that the magic of the Peanuts cartoons was the fact it told stories of people working out their interior problems of their daily lives without actually solving them. The absence of a solution was at the heart of the strip. And by 1954, sales started growing. Soon, Schultz was making $2,500 per month. Another two years later, it jumped to 4,000. Schultz quit his day job teaching at the art school. The following year, Peanuts did what Schultz thought it would never do. It broke even, reaching 100 newspapers, including many of the papers that had rejected him over the years. And it only got better. By 1958, eight years after its premiere, Peanuts appeared in 400 publications. His drawings were turned into books and animated movies and merchandise. And eventually the number of papers featuring his works peaked at 2,600 globally, earning Charles Schultz millions of dollars each year. And Sparky... The boy named after a homely horse with a featureless face who went through life feeling small as peanuts and who preferred to draw and withdraw became a household name and a worldwide sensation, bringing joy to little folks everywhere.
0: Perhaps the most meaningful recurring moment in the Peanuts world was Lucy and the football. She holds the ball in place, invites Charlie Brown to kick it. He takes a run at it, knowing full well Lucy has always pulled it back at the last moment, but hopes this will be the time he'll make contact. Then Lucy pulls it away, and Charlie Brown ends up on the ground staring at the sky. You can look at that running gag as a pathetic aspect of Charlie Brown. But that wasn't the message. It was about perseverance and hope. Because hope picks us up off the ground. Charles Schultz was constantly laughed out of the room when he was trying to get his career off the ground. His extended family thought he had zero potential. He was told cartooning wasn't man's work. His teachers laughed out loud at his dream. He was rejected by the art school for failing to show real ability. Disney said he was unqualified. The Chicago publisher said he wasn't professional enough. In spite of an avalanche of rejection, Charles Schultz still continued to mail out his comic strip every single week for 41 straight months. He always had hope. And one day, Charles Schultz was able to kick that ball. Because here's the thing. You will always, always encounter a lot of no's. But it only takes one yes. That yes is out there. It takes persistence to find it. You just need Charlie Brown's hope and Lucy's stubbornness. The last Peanuts comic ran just hours after Charles Schultz passed away in the year 2000. He never stopped drawing Peanuts and never stopped hating the name. The cartoonist that everyone said lacked ability ended up with a legendary 50-year cartooning career. Good grief, Charlie Brown. Never, ever give up. Peanuts. Total comic strips, 17,897. Total readers, 355 million. Longest running cartoon special in television history, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Charles Schultz. Keep looking up. That's the secret to life. Snoopy.
1: The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. We regret to inform you that our engineer is Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is Schultz and Peanuts, a biography by David Michaelis. Find out more at the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. If you're interested in advertising on our show, let's chat. Click advertise with us on our site. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time.